if you need a lesson, raise your hand. Um, I've been told this is one of the most boring lessons I've ever written in my life. So I'd recommend you get one and use it to go to sleep at night. Um, <laughs> three hands went down when I said that they needed one. Now they don't. Evidently, they sleep fine. Um, all right. We are in the 1500s. And in the 1500s, some really profound things happened in church history that we've been studying. We started with Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door. That's already taken place. We talked about Zwingli and the, the Reformation that was taking place in Switzerland. Uh, we talked last week about the rise, in the last couple of weeks, the rise of the anti-Baptist movement. There's still more going on in the first half of the 1500s that we're going to be covering today. And it's John Calvin. Now, those of you who are young may not realize this, but us old people used to have yellow pages and phone books when we couldn't look things up on the Internet or dial 1411 or whatever it is. Everybody remembers yellow pages? Sterling, do you even know what they are? Okay. Um, if you look up in the yellow pages under churches, you'll find things. You'll find things like the Presbyterian Church. In fact, you'll find lots of different Presbyterian churches. The Presbyterian Church of America, or PCUSA, the, the, the Cumberland Presbyterian. There are countless different Presbyterian churches. There are Reformed churches. There are Reformed churches throughout the world in various countries. You'll find congregational churches, especially up in New England. You'll find the Church of Christ. You'll find the Disciples of Christ. You'll find, if you're in Edinburgh, the Church of Scotland. Um, uh, what do all of these have in common? John Calvin. They all trace their... They deviate from the tree. They're, they come off the John Calvin branch of church history. Uh, not only that, but our Thanksgiving celebration. Uh, John Calvin. Do you know why? Pilgrims. They were Congregationalists. John Calvin. They were Calvinists. Um, in fact, the Geneva Bible, which was the Pilgrim's Bible was put out under the care and protection of John Calvin in Geneva. Uh, this was a time where it was still tough to get Bibles in English because uh, Henry VIII would uh, kill you for it. So they print an English Bible over in Geneva, Switzerland in 1560. Uh, what else? John Calvin, where's more influence? <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, the author of Calvin and Hobbes has admitted that Calvin's uh, cantankerous nature and his fatalistic view that everything is laid out is taken from John Calvin. Uh, uh, Hobbes is from Thomas Hobbes, the, the philosopher as well. Um, okay, what else? Anybody watch the TV show House? Okay, takes place supposedly at... The Princeton, uh, New Jersey campus. In fact, they use a Princeton, New Jersey building for the outside shots. Uh, um, and uh, Princeton uh, as a college, a Calvinistic school. That was its origin and where it was set up. John Calvin is someone we can look at. We've got actual portraits that were done while he was alive. I believe this portrait was done when he was in his 30s. We've got uh, Harold O.J. Brown as a famous uh, theologian of sorts in our era. He's a prolific writer, at least. Says, without Luther, Protestantism could hardly have begun. Without Calvin, it could hardly have survived. We're going to explore why during this class. I will tell you that not only do we have Calvin as a 30-year-old man, he got painted later in life. Uh, 
uh, he got painted multiple times in life. And as I've looked at these, these span a period of about 30 years in his life. And do you know what I've decided? He had goofy taste in hats. Look at that. I mean, he wore that puppy out. Bring the lights down a little bit so they can see that. That's, look, because you can't see it as well. Look, that's that same goofy hat look. It's kind of hard to see in that one. So uh, that has not lasted. We can't thank him for that. How about worship style? The style of worship, now, not as much what we have, okay? But if you go to a Presbyterian church where things are a little more formal and a little more structured, John Calvin's one of the principal responsibility people in history for developing the Protestant style of worship. He wrote a lot about it, what it should be and what it shouldn't be. How about Protestant doctrines and theology? Have you ever heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith? A few of you have. Do you go down to Grapevine and buy books occasionally and read anything by R.C. Spruill? That's what his parents said. Um, I've called him Spruill all my life. Um, R.C. Sproul, excuse me. Calvinist. Okay? Um, by that, people... Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is actually produced... Uh, shortly after the death of John Calvin, but it's an expression of Calvinism uh, and the Protestantism that goes with it. And uh, uh, the Sproul writings, he's a very avowed Calvinist or Reformed man. Now, you may have heard Calvin associated with tulips. Anybody ever heard that? Five-pointed tulips? Okay. Calvin didn't do that himself. These are students of Calvin who took Calvin's doctrine a little bit further than Calvin himself did, but they came up with the TULIP. T stands for total depravity. U is unconditional election. L is the limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. P is perseverance of the saints. The idea, T, total depravity. Man is absolutely, totally deprived after the fall. We'll talk about this some during class today. It's the premise that we have absolutely, we've lost uh, not just physical, not just physically are we depraved or imperfect, but spiritually as well. And by that, our willpower, our understanding, it's all shot, okay? Unconditional election. That's a salvation that is there regardless of what you earn, but... It's an election under Calvin's doctrine, which means God picks who it goes to. It's predestination. Okay? L, limited atonement. This is not necessarily Calvin, but it's associated with him because some of his students propagated it. Here it is. Jesus Christ died only for the sins of those who are going to be saved. His blood was not wasted on people who weren't, going to, who weren't in the elect. Okay? I, irresistible grace. If God's got his hand on you and you're elected, there's nothing you can do about it. He will reach into your heart and he will change who you are. The premise of this is anybody who is saved has to give total glory to God. It's not because they were smart enough or uh, blessed uh, or, or, or within themselves had the merit to turn and ask God for that help. Perseverance of the saints, in Baptist terminology, once saved, always saved. Okay? That's the tulip. 
As we look at John Calvin this morning, we're going to do it in the following. First, well, who was he? What did he do? And why did he do it? Who was John Calvin? We'll do that first. Um, We're going to skip over what did he do, because the second thing I want to do is why did he do it? Then we'll come back to what did he do, all right? First, who was John Calvin? Well, he was a French guy. His real name is Jean. Or Gene, if you're from Lubbock. <laughs> so we got Gene Calvin. Oh, that's Calvin Klein Gene. I'm sorry. Um, Gene Calvin, Jean Calvin. He was born July 10th, 1509. Mark your calendars. He'll have a birthday coming up, a uh, 500-year celebration of his birth in a couple of years. Um, he... Uh, has an interesting personal life. And I'm going to digress for just a minute. I didn't put much of this in the lesson, but that's because the lesson was set to be boring, and this might be considered interesting. Um, the, uh, when, uh, when Calvin is four or five, we don't know for certain his mother died. And he doesn't seem to have had the closest of relationships to his father. And, and I, I, I would be interested to have Lewis or somebody with a lot of sociology-type training or psychology training, get Dr. Bob to look at this, to to analyze some of of how this affected him in his life. His uh, father remarried shortly after his mother had died, and his father dies when Calvin's about 21 or 22. And Calvin's just kind of, eh, dad died. I mean, it doesn't look like it was a really close relationship. The father was very dictatorial. He told Calvin what he had to study, where he had to study. Uh, when his dad got, uh, when, when Calvin's a young kid, his dad sends him to the University of Paris to become a priest. They're a middle-class family. They don't have a lot of money, but the dad's got some good connections. And so he gets John Calvin a first-class education. Twelve is not, you're thinking, wow, a prodigy. He went to university. How old are you, Sterling? 14? <laughs> You'd almost be graduating from college, okay? 14. At 12, it's not that he was a prodigy. That's, what, that's the age they went to college back then, if they were going to go. So, so uh, uh, at 12, his dad sends him off. He's not at home anymore at that point in time and probably had been sent away from home earlier for schooling as well. Uh, he goes to the University of Paris. He's there. His dad wants him to study to become either a priest or a cardinal or maybe the pope. He wanted him big time in the church, okay? Calvin goes there. When Calvin goes there, he becomes a humanist. Okay, now, we're going to pause for a minute here because this is 21st century Southern Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. How many of you think a humanist is a bad thing? Raise your hand. Okay, see, like over half of you. Humanist has really bad connotations today in certain circles. It did not then. It was a very different term. It's the correct term to use for someone like John Calvin. But let's talk about what a humanist was in the 16th century as opposed to today. Um, The classic humanist picture is da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. Leonardo da Vinci was a humanist. The uh, uh, Desidrius Erasmus we talked about in class. He was a humanist. He was the first one to publish the uh, good Bible in Greek and Latin. Um... A humanist was someone who adhered to this Latin statement, ad fonts. Okay, Justin, I won't make you translate in front of the whole class. But if I asked Justin what that meant, he would say return to the beginning. 
And the rest of you probably would too because I have it up on the screen. But he would do it because he actually knew it. Okay? Font is beginning in Latin. Like you remember the song, uh, uh, those of you who grew up singing church hymns, Oh, thou fount of every blessing, tune our hearts to sing thy praise or whatever. Oh, thou fount of every blessing. The source. We still use the word a little bit like that. Ad fonts was, let's return to the beginning. In the 16th century, humanism might be called the first conservative movement. Because humanism said, it, let, let, let's return to the beginning of whatever it is we're doing. So when we talk about the Bible, a humanist scholar, when he comes to the Bible, says, let's don't just believe what the church teaches about the Bible today. Let's don't just read the Bible as it's being produced in Latin by the church. Let's return to the beginning. Whoops, I went too quick. Let's return to the Greek and to the Hebrew. Let's return to the original. Let's read our Bibles in the original. And there was a fellow in England who did this at about this time, actually a few years before. His name was Thomas Lineker. And Thomas Lineker, after he finally, he was an Oxford dean, after he finally read the Bible in Greek, said, either this original Greek is not the gospel, or we're not Christians. Because it's that different than what we're doing. The church had deviated that much in his perception, from what original scripture had taught. And so when we say that Calvin was a humanist, became a humanist, he latched on to this new way of thinking that was thinking in old-fashioned terms. The new thought, the humanist thought was that the Middle Ages had been a dead time where things had really uh, fallen backwards in development instead of grown, and we needed to get back to the basics of society and civilization and read the classics in Greek and Latin, and let's read the Bible in the original languages, and let's try and determine how things were at the beginning as opposed to how things are today. And so even art, humanist art, was the art that started looking realistic, like real things, instead of the iconographic art and the things that had developed. So that's what we mean when Calvin became a humanist. Now, at some point in this time, his dad gets really ticked off at the church. In fact, gets excommunicated from the church. And so says, well, my son's not going to be pope of any church I'm not a member of. So he tells his son, Jean, you are fine with this theology stuff. I'm jerking you out of that school. I want you to go to law school. Be a lawyer. <laughs> I feel sure if he'd been able to get into Texas Tech Law School, that's where he'd have gone, but he wasn't. So he had to go to the south of France to study law. And he proceeded to study law and actually got his law license. Dear old dad, meanwhile, dies. And I'd say that was about the end of John Calvin's law license. He's got it, but he doesn't use it any that I can ever see. Instead, what he does is he helps a friend of his who's just been made rector, or read that as a dean at the University of Paris, write his initial speech. His initial speech is written in 1533 to be given, I say his, the rector's now, the friend of Calvin. And Calvin and the friend had obviously been reading some Luther. Because while the University of Paris is a Catholic university and a very conservative one, you'll recall they were some of the judges of the debate that we talked about between Calvin and uh, uh, Beefy Butcher Voice Eck. 
The University of Paris were one of the judges for that, and they sided with Eck against Calvin, I mean against Luther. Um, uh, the University of Paris is a very Catholic school. And so at the University of Paris at this time, this rector stands up and he gives a speech that's got some of Luther in it. And uh, he gets sacked, and he gets in trouble, and John Calvin sees the writing on the wall, so John Calvin goes into hiding in 1533. And for the next year, he just kind of floats around and meets with the underground movement of humanists. Somewhere during this time period, he becomes an evangelical. Everybody knows the evangelical movement? Are you an evangelical? My Catholic friends in New York call me a born-again. They don't use evangelical that much. I've, you know, they introduce me. Uh, Ed Hayes introduces me, walks me around all the time. Hey, this is Lanier. He's from Texas. He's a born-again. I mean, it, it almost, it, it's like one word. It's a born-again. I'm a born-again. You're a born-again. That's what they, but another name for a lot of Protestants is an evangelical. And it goes all the way back to this time period because in Greek, you angelone, or the evangel of evangelical, is the Greek word for good news or gospel. Okay? So the evangelical movement, that part of, is, is the Protestant movement that was proclaiming the gospel as opposed to traditional Catholicism. So John Calvin becomes an evangelical. In the process, trouble happens in France. The French king decides that the evangelicals are causing major trouble. And so he just starts burning them. Um, a bunch of them are getting burned. John Calvin decides at this point in time to flee, and he goes to Switzerland. Settles in Basel for a while. And this is where we're going to pick up the story next week about his life. But we're going to stop the story of his life now and talk about what he had to say and why he said it. Let's go to why he did it. While Calvin is in Basel, Calvin's been working on something called his Institutes. It's his life's crowning achievement. It's his major work. It's, it's like a, a 101 textbook of the basics of theology. Okay? If... Um, it, all right, let's do it this way. Consider this. No, I'm not breaking into an REM song, um, though I did in my brain when I said consider this. You all remember that? It's, it's ironic. It's losing my religion. It's the song where they sing that. But uh, consider this, okay? Sorry, my brain's a bit scattered. You all know this guy? Okay, we've hired him recently, right? Look at this. He has an MDiv, a Master's of Divinity, and a Ph.D. from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. All right, here's a harder one. Y'all know this guy? Okay, some of y'all are coming on Wednesday nights. Um, he's preached some on Wednesday nights. He's a new guy too, Dr. Stephen Trammell. Like this. He's got a, a Master's in Divinity and a Doctor of Ministry from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Y'all know this guy? <laughs> he's got two Master's degrees from Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. Isn't it interesting that when we got our new preacher, we didn't get someone with absolutely no seminary training? You go look at our staff, and you're going to see most of the people who, well, all of the people in positions where they are leading and teaching have seminary degrees. 
at the time John Calvin's living, they didn't have seminaries. There was an absolute lack of training of Protestant ministers. Protestantism itself has just been started. It's basically an underground movement in everywhere except northern Germany. And what Luther had been doing was dissolving the monasteries, which is where some training would take place. So you don't have any... You could go to a university, but they're all Catholic. So where are we going to train our Protestant ministers? How are they going to be trained? Calvin's very motivated by this because Calvin's very upset. The real scholastic ministers in the Protestant or evangelical movement are just converted Catholics. But what are you going to do? Say, okay, you want to be a minister? Go to the Catholic training and when you get through, come back out and we'll teach you the Protestant views. Calvin was concerned because he was absolutely convinced that there were two major problems that he needed to solve, that he was called to solve. Problem number one was in the pulpit. Because the preachers didn't know what they were doing. And you might as well, he said, have a monkey up there doing it for what they're teaching. And there's more to it than that. If the preacher doesn't know what he's teaching, what happens to the people in the congregation? Huh? Duh. They had no clue. And Calvin says, when they have no clue of what to do, and they have no clue what the Bible says, and most people at that time, the common man couldn't read, and if he could read, he didn't have a Bible. They were too expensive still, even though the printing press had been around since 1450. So what do you have? You have an ignorant population attending a church taught by a monkey. And Calvin wants to change that. And Calvin sees two ways to change it. One, train the monkey and make him a human preacher who knows theology and how to read and understand the Bible. And then train the people out there by teaching them good theology and teaching them what the Bible says and how to read and understand it. That's all he wanted. That's pretty good, huh? Okay. So Calvin writes this theology primer. You can buy a copy. There are several good English translations. I've put down my favorite in the paper. (laughs) You can make it through that far to find it without falling asleep. Because I've been told this is the most boring thing I've ever written. Um, But I'm not bitter, Dale. Uh, I will tell you, he said to me, he said, I'm going to try to read it a second time. Then I get this email a little bit later. It says, Triple latte grande at Starbucks. I still can't make it through. (laughs) Um, um, Calvin Calvin decides he's going to write the Institutes, and he does. This is his seminal work. It actually evolves throughout his lifetime because he's constantly making changes to it as he gets new insight or as his own theology grows or as new events happen in history and in the course of his life. And so we have this four-volume set, by the time he's dead, called The Institutes, and it really reads like Theology 101. It would be the basic textbook. Calvin starts a seminary, too, later on in his history. We haven't gotten to that point yet. But this is the basic textbook to teach the preachers. He does something shorter called a catechism for the common person, because they're not going to wade through this very well. 
um, uh, not that I'm discouraging you from trying. I say get a copy, give it a read. It's very interesting. Sort of. The title is The Institutes. Um, Calvin doesn't title it that. That's what we put on the spine of it. Calvin's title of it is The Institute of the Christian Religion Containing Almost the Whole Sum of Piety and Whatever is Necessary to Know in the Doctrine of Salvation, a work very well worth reading by all persons zealous for piety and lately published. A preface to the most Christian king of France in which this book is presented to him as a confession of faith. John Calvin of Noyon, now in Basel. 1536. Back then, some people could really do some incredible things with uh, titles. And if you think about it, let me give you two reasons why. You're going to print the title on the title page, right? You're going to use an entire sheet of paper for that. It's going to run through that printing press, whether you put one sentence on it or a long sentence on it. And back then, they didn't have the back of the book where you could just look at the back of the book and say, oh, what is this about? Yeah, I think I'll read it or not. I'm not going to read it. Or they didn't have the covers with the little sleeves that you could read a synopsis of the book, so they'd stick it all in the title, on the title page. Um, once we get a little bit further in society and paper gets cheaper and all, then uh, we change that up. But back then, that's kind of typical. Uh, this is what he wanted. You'll notice he dedicates it to the king of France who's burning all of his friends and has caused him to run. It's real interesting to read the dedication. It's long. He says, King, you're doing all of this stuff because you just don't know better. You've probably been taught by the monkeys. So I'm giving you this because if you're interested in piety, you can read this and you can become, you know, further along down the road than you are now and quit burning everybody. The four books, we're going to talk about two of them this morning. Book one, Knowing God the Creator. Now you might be thinking, gee, We've read about Anselm and his proofs for God and Aquinas and his proofs for God. What does Calvin do to prove the existence of God? In book one, no about God. He doesn't. He says, I'm not going to waste your time proving the existence of God. You know he exists. He says, you do. You bring the hardest core atheists. They know God exists. They're just trying to convince themselves as much as convince you because they don't want him to or they want to consider life without him. But he says, any thinking person knows he exists. No thinking person lives in the atheist station. If you're a thinker, you recognize there has to be a God. There has to be something going on here. He says, what we know about God, what man knows about God, is there if he thinks about it, just think about who we are. Think about what it's like to be a human. Think about how intricately we're made. I talked to one of my friends, a doctor up at Brown University, uh, in that last Vioxx trial, late one night. And I just said to him, I said, David, when this is over with, you're going to have to explain to me how you can be an atheist and a doctor. I just don't understand. I mean, I don't understand how you can honestly think this elaborate system that's the human body is just a result of chance and time. That there's no designer behind this design. It just makes no sense to me. Francis Schaeffer, uh, another Calvinist, would take this a step further, when we may study him, if time permits, in the 20th century, when he said, there is something inherent in all of us. Schaeffer calls it the mannishness of man. 
that just there's just we're different than the world we're uh, than, than the beasts of the field we there's something within all of us that affirms within us that there is a god and so calvin's not going to waste his time arguing oh here's a logical word he says because the bottom line is if you want to logically try and argue away god that's fine but you know you're arguing inside yourself as well as outside because you're trying to convince yourself. So he just assumes that there's a God. And he says that. I'm just going to make that assumption because any thinking person can figure out there is something beyond us. He says, now, God and man, let's look at that. He says, we don't really know ourselves well until we behold God. This almost looks like a circle, but I'll show you how he breaks it out in a minute. He says, if you want to know yourself, you need to know God. I'll quote him. Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he's first looked upon God's face. We always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. We don't really know how dastardly and terrible we are until we truly behold God in all of His grandeur. I don't know about you, but there have been seminal moments in my life, times of worship is one example, where I have come into the presence of God in a new and different way or something, or a fresh way, and I've been so convicted of how imperfect and unholy I am. We see that biblically with John on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation when he beholds the glory of God and he falls down. Or how about Isaiah? Oh, so unworthy. When he sees God in his temple enthroned in the, the Holy of Holies with with the, the, the angels falling down, worshiping, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And he says, Woe unto me, I am unclean and I live among a people of uncleanness and unclean lips. And he can't even do anything until the angel takes a, a coal from the altar, which we understand the altar to have been Christ. He was the sacrifice. And touches Isaiah's lips with it. And so Calvin says, we know God's there just by looking at who we are, but we don't really know who we are until we look at God. You see that delightful little twist he puts on it? We don't really know ourselves until we behold God. So the question he asks is, how do we behold God so that we can better understand who we are? What do we need to do to get a better vision of who God is? What do we need to teach our children to do so that they can better behold God? Because the more clearly we behold God, the more clearly we understand who we are. And the more clearly we understand who we are, the greater our faith in God. In that sense, it is a circle that feeds off itself. I have a friend who's got a child who's at that questioning stage that many of us went through, trying to figure out, is there a God? And I urged my friend, I said, you know, one thing that, 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 that truly makes a difference, tell your child while your child is searching to spend time in the Word and time in prayer. 
if you're trying to find out if something exists, don't wander about aimlessly. Use roadmaps. Okay? If you're going to read, don't just read what Baba Ram Das writes about his Eastern mysticism and be here now. But also read what we find in the Bible. Spend time beholding the face of God and it will grow your faith in God. And that's what he says. How do we behold God? Well, maybe we look at the nighttime stars. Doesn't Psalm 8 tell us? When I look at the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars that you've created, what is man that you're mindful of him? You know, something majestic about that. Doesn't Paul say in Romans 1 that men are without excuse because God's handiwork is all about us? Well, yes, and Calvin acknowledges the universe shows God and His handiwork, but Calvin says that's unreliable. That can lead to superstition. That can lead to astrology. That can lead to all sorts of unreliable... While you can see that there is a God, the picture you get of God from the universe can be an incomplete one because these are human minds that are conceiving it. Now, we can look at the universe and say, ah, God must be orderly because the universe is orderly. And that's true. God is an orderly God. But we know it's true because we read Scripture. Calvin says Scripture is our reliable guide for knowing God, the Creator. So, God exists, yes. We know it in our hearts. We know it in our minds. Who are we? Well, we know that more fully when we behold God. We behold God not just by looking at the stars. We really need to look at Scripture to behold who God is. That's where we'll get it. Next question. If Scripture is our reliable guide for knowing God, how do we read Scripture? And that's where Calvin says we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes Scripture come alive. Sometimes have you read your Bible and it just seems to like be words that you're reading and when you're done you don't have any clue what you read yeah i do that with like a lot of different things i read try the institutes what was that i I read every word i said them all out loud in my brain i have no clue what he just said that happens sometimes but have you also had the other experience where you read your bible and it just seems god has just touched something deep inside you and changed who you are changed how you feel given you what you need for that moment That's the Holy Spirit working in you. And what Calvin says is, he says, and and this, this needs to be something that happens to you personally. See, the Catholic Church at that time did not see things that way. What would be your primary source of what you know and what you believe? At that time in the Catholic Church, it's what the church has to say. In Latin, frequently, that's true. It's what the church has to say. Calvin says, no, it's the word of God that you need to go to. There is is a divergence here between what Calvin's saying and what, what the Catholic church at the time was saying. The Catholic church said, if you want to know who God is, and you want to know what God has done, and you want to know who you are, then you listen to me, the Catholic church, as decreed by the Pope. The Pope is the interpreter. Calvin and the evangelical movement says no. The humanist movement says no. Let's get back to the Bible. Now, the Catholic Church is going to have its own reformation in a little while. This is not where the Catholic Church is today. This is where the Catholic Church was then. Calvin is saying, 
We've got to get back to the Bible. That's the source. The Catholic Church responds and says, no, it's not. Church trumps Bible. Okay? Calvin says, Bible trumps church. Church says, where'd you get your Bible? From church. It was the church that decided what's in Scripture and what's not. The church put together the canon. The church trumps the Bible. There was a church before there was a Bible. The apostles had a church before they ever wrote any of the Bible. Church trumps Bible. Calvin. (laughs) Bible is the Word of God produced by the Spirit of God. The apostles spoke the Word of God. They walked with the Word of God. They were imbued with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And there was a Bible, even if it had not been written, in the sense that there was the Word of God made flesh that dwelt among us and then was expressed through the apostolic ministry by the work of the Holy Spirit. The written book we have is a a, a, a God's extant copy of much of that activity. But the activity itself are not the word. The, the Bible's not just the words on the page. It's, it's the events in history and the message that was communicated in history that's recorded in that book. Bible trumps church. Church. I disagree. Calvin. Then we'll just agree to disagree. And that's the distinction. Does it make sense? Okay. Calvin says, now... If the Bible's revealing God, we got a problem because we have idolatry going on. We have idolatry because we have this is the on the the this is the G-rated version of what's on the the uh, uh, roof of the Sistine Chapel. It's been painted, fifteen seventeen, I think. So it's uh, thirteen or so years old, fourteen years old when Calvin's writing this. Calvin says that's wrong. No images of God. You can have a naked Adam, but you can't have God reaching out. Because God said in Exodus not to have any images of him and not to make any images of him. And any time you make an image of God, you know, um, Mark Craver, don't put John Calvin on your internet email chain because you send out a lot of these emails that will have a picture of Jesus in them. Ha! Huh. He would just probably burn you at the stake. Don't put an image out there because God didn't give us a picture of who He is. And when we start associating, merely looking at the picture, Calvin would have me in irons right now for showing this picture to you. Because he says the mere looking at a picture is starting to turn God into something that you're imagining instead of you understanding who He is by His own revelation and His Word. He says, God made man in His image. And the problem with humanity is we've been spending all our time remaking God in our image. And when you see Him as an old man on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, you start thinking of God with all of the connotations of what an old man is. When you see Him with a beard, subtly you start thinking of God with whatever connotations there are of what a bearded person must be. You say, well, that's ridiculous. No, it's a Bob won't let me try a case with any stubble or any beard. 
He says, when was the last time we had a president in the United States with a beard? It hadn't been in my lifetime. Because we live in a day where people with beards have a little less trust when they speak in public. Unless they're John Von Burke, because he's such a trustworthy guy. He makes up for it with those warm eyes. I'm not slamming anybody with a beard. I have one right now. For me, this is about as big as it gets. Okay? But as a public, how many big-time public speakers who rely upon their persuasive ability for a living have beards? Not many. I have only made it. Whoa. Okay. God made man in his image, but man spends time making man in God's image. Man misunderstands God's revelation. We're zipping. We're going to make like three minutes here, okay? Where it talks about God repenting that he had made man. Calvin says that's um, in there, the story of Noah. But God didn't repent. God didn't change his mind. God's not like that. God's having to use baby talk. Because that's the only way people back then could have understood what God was trying to say. But when you read it, don't start thinking that those human terms are really a reflection of who God is. That's just God trying to communicate an idea to us and we are so far from His glory that we're not able to comprehend who He is. So God's got to use what theologians today would call anthropomorphisms to describe Himself. Um, Book 2, Knowing God the Redeemer. Um, I don't have time to do this. I'm out of time and that's my fault for the way I taught class. I'm sorry. So here's what we're going to do. I will plug this in uh, week after next, God willing. And we'll continue to work with Calvin. And let me right now zip to... Oh, see, man, this was going to be so good. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. We had Rembrandt. Rembrandt was a humanist artist. Um, uh, man, we were using Rembrandt pictures. This was going to be good. Points for home. Man, we're created in God's image, but we're under a curse. Now, I don't have... These points for home are really for point two. So I'm going to pause for a minute. And I'm going to give brand new points for home so you don't leave this unpointed for home. (laughs) Would you do me a favor? Would you take some time to contemplate God? Because He really is there and He really does exist. And in your heart, you know it. And if you've got questions and you've got arguments and you truly have intellectual issues that keep you from believing there's a God, come talk to me. Come talk to Lewis. Come talk to... Make an appointment. Go see Trammell. Go see Dale. Go see someone out there that can talk to you about it. Because there are good answers. But I want to tell you, deep in your heart, you know God's there. And then my second question then is this, what do you do about that? Because the temptation for many is to ignore it. Because it really starts making you a bit uncomfortable. And wouldn't we rather be eating lunch? And wouldn't we rather be watching basketball? Or wouldn't we rather be doing all these other things? We've got jobs. We've got responsibilities. We have kids. Or we have parents. Or we have grandkids. We have grandparents. Aren't there enough things to keep our minds and lives occupied without contemplating the fact that there is a God who knows not only me by name, but how many hairs are on my head? Who actually knows what thought is in my brain, what word is coming out before it's even on my tongue? I mean, when you think that that God is there and you know that that God has that interest in you, like David said this morning, 
that that God has that kind of an interest in you and your life, you've got to respond. You cannot ignore that God. And that's my challenge to you. Come back in two weeks and let's finish Calvin up or come close, please. Thank you.